Welcome to the Land Before Podcast, an exploration of fossil histories and paleo mysteries. From Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado, I'm your host, Erin LeCount, Education Programs Director at Dinosaur Ridge and the longest running staff member here. The launch of this podcast coincides with my 20th work anniversary. Suffice it to say, I have been here long enough to know where all the bodies are buried. Okay, that's not quite true, but there are bound to be more bodies out there, or more accurately, more fossilized bones and dinosaur tracks still to be discovered. But of those that are currently visible in the Jurassic and Cretaceous rocks at Dinosaur Ridge, I have seen them all. And I've probably written the signage that tells our visitors what they're looking at. I'm excited Dinosaur Ridge is forging into new territory with this podcast. We're going to share stories about fossils found here in Colorado and explore discoveries from all around the world. We'll get into paleo mysteries still puzzling scientists and discuss what all this information tells us about prehistoric life on Earth and why it's relevant to those of us living on Earth today. In this first episode, we're going to talk about a dinosaur near and dear to our hearts, the Stegosaurus. Specifically, Stegosaurus armatus. Most everyone is familiar with the roofed lizard with the big plates on the back and the spikes on the tail, the phagomizers, if you will. The Stegosaurus has been Colorado's state fossil since April 28, 1982, but a lot of people who live here don't realize that and don't know much about this big herbivore that once lived on land now known for Rocky Mountains and Amber Waves of Grain. You're going to learn some things about Stego guaranteed to surprise you. Dinosaur Ridge happens to be the site where the very first Stegosaurus fossil bones were excavated and described, dug out way back in 1877 and sent by railroad to Yale, where famous American paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh gave it the name Stegosaurus. At first he thought the plates lay flat like a giant tortoise shell, hence roofed lizard. Today, of course, we know that Stego was not a lizard, but a plant-eating dinosaur of the late Jurassic when the land here was flat and at sea level. My colleague Michelle Howell, our guest services manager, recently had an awesome conversation with a local paleontologist we work very close with here in Morrison. He's an expert on the Stegosaurus armatus, and a bit of a character. Michelle caught up with Matt Mossbrucker at his home away from home, the Morrison Natural History Museum. The Morrison Natural History Museum, Dinosaur Ridge Sister Museum, is a bit off the beaten path, tucked behind the main drag of historical downtown Morrison. When you turn left on Highway 8 from the shop and restaurant line Bear Creek Avenue, you wind through a small neighborhood, past a school and a post office, and on your way to local trails, a two-story lodge catches your eye to the right. This building has been repurposed from a lodge to a museum and a paleontological lab. And I am meeting with the chief curator and director, Mass Mothrucker. Matt has described himself in print and in person as someone who digs up dead things and shows them to children. He himself is like the relics adorning the museum walls, much too big fitting in a space designed for something else entirely, like leisure after skiing compared to breakthrough discoveries in the understanding of ancient anatomy. I head into his office, a cramped corner-filled room from floor to ceiling with books, notepads, specimens. It's an active room, one that almost seems like a secret portal to another time, fastened together by the sheer drive and curiosity of a man who is adorned like Indiana Jones with a Jurassic edge. As I get ready to speak with him, I know even just our conversation will be an adventure. Well, hi, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for um, making time for us. Oh, anytime. You guys are my favorite. <laughs> so uh, today we're going to talk about the Stegosaurus, pretty famous dinosaur, especially here in Colorado. Now, the most recognizable part of the Stegosaurus is its tail, the one with all the spikes or thagomizers. A lot of people uh, imagine Stegosaurus as a mighty warrior, swinging that tail with a battle weapon to fend off predators, 
maybe even kill its enemies with that spiky tail. I'd like to hear what your thoughts are on that. But first, there's something really special here at the Morrison Natural History Museum relating to Stegosaurus, specifically the Stegosaurus armatus. Am I saying that right? You are. Stegosaurus armatus is the first named Stegosaur. That was in 1877. We have some of the remains that define what it means to be a Stegosaurus. So in 2008, you discovered that two loose blocks of the partial tail vertebrate here at the museum fit together, right? How did this finding change our understanding of the appearance of Stegosaurus? It was Stegosaurus, even though we think we know this animal, right? We all grew up with it. It's been in kids' books as a tiny-headed, big, round critter with its tail dragging on the ground, kind of corpulent. Growing up, I knew of Stegosaurus. I knew it was our state fossil because I was around when that happened. And, you know, I wasn't terribly interested in the animal. I mean, it seemed to have two brains. According to the kids' books I was reading, it just wasn't a very fascinating dinosaur. So as I grew older, I realized after actually looking at the bones themselves that we don't understand stegosaurs very well. And its reputation as a warrior is probably not earned. I think this is more of a lover not a fighter. And it's not the animal I ever expected it to be. So what were the main functions, though, of the stego's tail? How important was it to the animal? Tails and all dinosaurs are super important. And here's why. The tail is an honorary third back leg. From the thigh bone, if you were to trace where it meets in the hip, down halfway, almost to the knee, there is a lump of bone that faces towards the tail. That is a lump of bone we call the fourth trochanter. From that lump stretching onto the first third of the tail, there's a big muscle group. These are the cardiofemoralis muscles. And as they contract, they pull the knee back towards the tail tip, pushing the dinosaur forward. So the reason why dinosaurs have tails is it's part of their locomotion strategy. It helps them to walk and move. So that's the fundamental basis to why Stegosaurus has a tail. In about 2009, a colleague of mine, Robert Bacher, and I were looking at Stegosaur tails and how they moved and trying to thread muscles on them. As it turns out, they don't move like you would expect. They don't switch back and forth. The little finger-like joints, the pre- and post-sagopophyses that lock the tail together, the transverse processes, these are wing-like projections that are scalloped and kind of obliquely oriented on the tail. They direct muscles that thread over the hips to twist the tail, not to swish it. So that creates a unique motion. When you look at the bottom side of the tail, there are little V-shaped bones called chevrons. Well, they go almost to the tail tip. What that tells me is that Stegosaurus's tail, even to the tip, can flex downward and move left and right under the animal's control. Very few animals can do that. The tail's darn near prehensile, kind of like a giant monkey. It's not hanging from trees, but that allows a stegosaur to change the shape of that rosette of spikes, the thagomizer, if you will. The tail has at least four, sometimes more, but not usually, but at least four large plates. Those plates in combination with the plates over the hips and the back and the neck, uh, that's a way of Stegosaurus declaring its uniqueness, its flair, its place in the world, especially among other Stegosaurus. 
These are devices that communicate within these animals' herds. And we do know they moved in herds because we have um, one really nice mass grave site called Quarry 13 at Como Bluff, Wyoming, where a herd of stegos were killed in the same event. And these plates and on the tail are helping to signal other stegosaurs. Hey, this is my territory. Hey, this is my mate. Um, don't mess with me. They add apparent volume to the dinosaur, mass to the dinosaur, right? Without actually locking up expensive muscle tissue onto bones. And you know, the plates themselves, they are anchored in the skin. So as the animals move or the wind blows, they'll shake like wind chimes. Um, so little dance of a stegosaur would have been quite elegant to see. So another reason for the tail, part of its communication strategy. But yeah, the tail tip itself, which depending upon the stegosaur species, four to eight spikes, because there are two very different types of stegosaurs in the Morrison, multiple species. Those spikes absolutely could have been used to defend itself. An option of last resort always with any animal, but that's why they were there. Okay, would that be its like last like a uh, resource for defense? Is there yeah. anything else that it could defend itself with? Yeah, there weren't any cell phone towers at the time, so dialing 911 was totally ineffective. <laughs> it's fair to say then that stegosaurus would not be able to survive without a tail. Like if its tail got bitten off by an allosaurus, it's done so. Well, tail tip, mm, it would survive. Mm. But if it goes too deep into the muscle base that helps the back legs to move, yeah, it's going to have a hard time getting around. For example, we have a T-Rex specimen where the tail was bitten off about halfway through, but that cardiofemoralis group of muscles was still preserved. So the animal could still move around and, and get food, even though it was missing a substantial bit of its tail. So when people visit the Morrison Natural History Museum, what do you hope they learn about Stegosaurus? Uh, if they remember one thing to go tell others, what's that key detail? You know, I want people to realize that when they visit the Morrison Museum, that dinosaurs lived here. They didn't live in a far off land, that these were indigenous critters that predated us as human beings, and that the world that they inhabited was every bit as complex as our modern world, but very different. I mean, if a stegosaurus was to survey Morrison and Dinosaur Ridge, uh, at the end of the Jurassic, it would look west and it would not see mountains. The root of those mountains were still buried way below ground. So skiing was terrible. The land was flat. It was dry. It was hot. The plant life was foreign. There's no flowering plants here yet. It was a very different yet somewhat similar world, very alien. And I want folks to realize that that landscape, that environment, those animals that were here were every bit as successful as everything living today. And those ecosystems, they evolved and they rose and the world changed and they fell. And that pattern has happened over and over again. So I really want people to connect with that deep time history in a real sense by putting them in a place like Morrison, where there are remains of these animals coming out of the ground and the rocks that tell the story of those vanished landscapes and animals. No big deal. I mean, it's, it's a very small point. It's just connecting people with the history of their planet and life on earth. Yeah. <laughs>
Now, your logo for your museum here at Morrison, it's a stegosaurus, and I notice it has an emphasis on, like, the tail. Is that based off of your findings, the stegosaurus logo here? Well, we do have a, a couple of logos. Our primary logo has an apatosaurus on it yes. because that's our, our other famous critter because the first apatosaurus ever described was found in Morrison, described in 1877. Our stegosaurus and its tail and our multiple logos, yeah, stegosaurus has been one of our beasties because it's not so much we found it, it's is that it found us. When this museum was put together as a small nonprofit in the late 1980s in a recycled log cabin, well, we were able to get our hands on some of the unprepared bones from the first stegosaurus skeleton described. When I say unprepared, we're talking about remains that still have rock all over them. So they're completely encrusted in stone. That stone has been the bane of my existence um, since uh, I've I've been here because it is a grain-supported sandstone, so it behaves more like granite uh, than it does sandstone. So it makes fossil preparation painfully slow. But as we have gone on and tried new tools and new tools have been engineered, we have found that it is possible to clean these bones. And it's worthwhile because the ecosystem that our Stegosaurus Armatus was a part of, and Patosaurus Ajax too, they were living together. It's unique. These species... I wish I could say that we have better samples elsewhere because then I would have the ability to understand these dinosaur species better, but I don't, I don't see them. They're cousins, but not our local species. So I can only honestly say that the species that we have from Dinosaur Ridge on the Jurassic side, the West side, Morrison Formation side, they only exist here for now. My name is Jim Watson. I'm a docent at the exhibit hall here at Dinosaur Ridge. We represent a lot of dinosaur species here in the form of models, casts, molds, dinosaur trackway sites. This guy right here, Stegosaurus, state fossil of Colorado. In 1877, bones of Stegosaurus were found by Arthur Lakes and Othneo Marsh in Quarry Site 5 on the west side of Dinosaur Ridge. But you know what? When I'm around dinosaur fossils and dinosaur models, I'm just thinking about dinosaurs in general. What would these dinosaurs sound like if we could hear them? You know, maybe different than the dinosaur sounds that we hear from the movies Jurassic Park, the less digital sounds. This is what I think a stegosaurus might sound like. It's okay, Steggy. It sounds like Stegosaurus is calling for its little ones or for some food. Good, Steggy. That's what I think a Stegosaurus might sound like. We have such fun people working and volunteering at Dinosaur Ridge. Thanks, Jim. And thanks to Michelle and Matthew for the Stego convo. I'm thinking at the end of this podcast, I'll do a little pop quiz to see what you've learned. So stick around for that. So when you think of paleontology, you probably picture dig sites in remote countrysides, braving the elements to dig for fossils with the hopes of finding something special. National Geographic reported that in 2021 alone, 42 new dinosaur species were found around the world by paleontologists. The University of Maryland's Tom Holtz keeps a database of new dinosaur discoveries and provided that number. Here in Colorado, some of the most interesting fossil discoveries have been made at construction sites. 
and recovered through a field of science called mitigation paleontology. The state of Colorado has exactly one paleontologist on the payroll, and she's a mitigation paleontologist who happens to also serve on the Dinosaur Ridge Advisory Board. I visited Dr. Nicole Peavy at her office at the Colorado Department of Transportation, CDOT around here, to learn how she got into mitigation paleontology and what happens with the fossils found at roadside construction sites. It may not be what you expect. I started out in graduate school pursuing my, my degrees in paleontology. When I got to Colorado, I actually started out in mitigation paleontology and consulting, which was honestly not something I knew existed prior to that point. I was really thinking I was going to need to go into academia, either teaching or getting you know a museum job or something like that. Um, but I started out working where when um, there was a construction project, somebody would call up a team of trained paleontologists who could go out and salvage fossils from these, uh, these projects. I did about three years of that, at which point the former uh, CDOT paleontologist retired. I applied for the job and the mitigation paleontology experience was, I think, what secured me the job. It's been really interesting. It suits my interests very well. That's cool. So what is the definition of mitigation paleontology? Because oh, that's a question. Cool. That sounds cool. <laughs> mitigation paleontology. Okay, so normally when people think about paleontology, they think about people going out into the wilderness to, to find fossils. You know, you've checked the maps. You, you think you know where all the things are going to be. And, and digging in rocks specifically for the pur- purpose of, um, of finding fossils. With mitigation paleontology, you take advantage of construction or excavation that is already happening. You go in, you check for fossils. Um, I will sometimes tell kids, especially, that I save dinosaurs from being squished in the road, uh, nice. which is, it's not wrong. Um, again, dinosaurs, relatively rare. A lot more commonly, I'll find things like um, oyster shells mm-hmm. um, or other more common invertebrate fossils. But dinosaur fossils have been, have been found. Uh, here in the Denver area, it's actually a lot of plants. Oh, that makes sense. But, um, yeah, it's, it's going out and checking existing excavation, um, for example, for building a road uh, when the train line was going into the airport. Mm. I worked on that. Um, found a lot of plant fossils on that one. Oh, well, and that's when they found uh, a lot of the DIA construction. They oh, uncovered yes, a ton of the very late Cretaceous, just after the dinosaurs, rainforesty, Colorado, mm-hmm. cool palm fronds. And oh, yes. And actually, probably the, um, the, the find that CDOT is most well known for is something called the Castle Rock Rainforest, uh, which is down in Castle Rock. Currently, you cannot see it anymore, Uh, but when I-25 was being reconstructed through the area, this massive cache of plants from right after the age of dinosaurs ended, from just into the start of the Cenozoic, that was uncovered. This is well before my time. I think I was in middle school when it was first uncovered, Um, but still considered one of the most important finds um, on a transportation project. Yeah, I remember taking a field trip. Yeah. Down there with Dr. Kirk Johnson. Oh, fantastic. And I was, uh, yeah, middle school, uh, like late middle school, very right. early high school, dino nerd with my grandma. Went Sounds down about right, yeah. To uh, get out and poke around at the construction area, and, and then I helped him catalog fossil leaves, and that's where I learned that I don't like doing paleobotany. Really? <laughs> yeah. I have Cataloging learned... drip tips. I have learned so much about paleobotany from doing mitigation work in Denver. And um, unfortunately, we had Ian Miller until very recently here at the DMNS. And I still occasionally email him. He's like, Ian, I found a thing. I think it's a horse tail, but I don't know. He's like, yes, it is. Thank you. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about your interpretation of, I found it, can I keep it? Because there's a lot attached to that short little question. Oh my gosh, it's very fraught. Um, okay, so first of all, a little bit of background. In Colorado, the rules are actually a little bit stricter than at the federal level. So if you are out on um, BLM land, U.S. Forest Service land, um, certain other kinds of federal land, there are certain fossils that if you find them, you can keep them. So uh, common invertebrates, common plants usually, anything that doesn't have a backbone, typically speaking, as long as it's common, you can pick one up and take it home and put it on your shelf. There's other rules. You can't take anything to sell. You can't just like strip mine the place for fossils and then decorate your whole house and then please don't do that. Um, and of course, if it's National Park Service, you don't take anything. You don't pick a flower. Take only pictures, leave only footsteps and all that. Um, in Colorado, fossils are lumped together with archaeological finds and historical resources, which means that because people get awfully skittish about anything related to humans, you cannot take anything off of state-owned or uh, state-subsidiary-owned land, so city or county. Uh, so they are actually extra protected in Colorado. And a lot of people don't realize this because I think it's... It, it varies, but it's usually about 50 feet or so from the center of the road is what's called the CDOT right-of-way, and that is state land. And because it is so common to go out collecting on roadsides, because there's these big, beautiful road cuts, um, a lot of people think that they can go and collect fossils from roadsides, and I have to tell them that they're not allowed to, and people can get a little upset about that. I understand the impulse because again, I find so many little bits of oyster shell that are not going to get sent to a museum. Uh, the museum simply doesn't have space to keep track of all the little bits, especially from the pier shale here along the, uh, the front range. That's something that I see a lot of. Um, but yeah, technically it's illegal. And that's really all I can tell people because uh, people with a permit like me to collect we have to have some base level of training so that if I go out and find something that's uncommon, I'll recognize it. Um, and I can't guarantee that anybody else out collecting won't accidentally collect, I don't know, the, uh, the nicest ichthyosaur that just happens to be in that same, you know, mudstone as all of the random seashells. Uh, and so it's, it's harder to keep track of um, if you don't have the, the permit situation. Now, there are a few places, and this has been sort of under, you know, low-key discussions for years. Um, there are a few states where there are, like, simple collector's permits that you can get. Um, and so there's some discussion about maybe doing that in Colorado, but we've got several other things to iron out first before that would be feasible. And of course, depending on where you are, the rules may be different. Um, because again, I did my, uh, my master's degree in Kansas, and we did a ton of roadside collecting, the rules are different in Kansas. Um, uh, and of course, if you own the land that you're collecting on, anything there is yours. That's just how that works. If you don't own the land you're collecting on and somebody else does, then please be careful because that is a safety issue. Make sure you have permission. Yeah, you don't want to. You don't want to have the pickup truck with the shotgun nope. roll up. Nope, 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 nope. I don't know that. Nope. That's a lot of Wyoming digging experience yes, for I me. Imagine. Is, is find the ranch owner. Uh, so you mentioned the oyster fossils and other invertebrates or numerous specimens that don't end up in museums. Where do they end up? Some of them, some of them wind up here. 
for a teaching collection. Some of them wind up at Dinosaur Ridge. So, that's right. Some collection. of them do wind up at Dinosaur Ridge Teaching Collection. Um, technically, as long as they go to a state-approved repository, mm-hmm. that's fine. Frankly, some of them stay there. It's yeah. it's always kind of disappointing to hear, but yeah, sometimes we leave the fossils there to get squished. Mm-hmm. Um, this has happened on other digs I've been on. I did a summer working at uh, Fossil Butte National Monument, and yes, you know you we can't re- keep every fish. We record the fish, and then as soon as the visitors have gone, you discreetly chuck it over the hillside because there's no room in the. You uh, see how far they go. Building. You, it's like skipping rocks, but yeah. you're in a field. Yeah, and you just go. <laughs> Well, and especially a lot of these are what we're called in fish there, which just means you can see the bones inside, but you're never going to be able to get them clear. And so it's just, we recorded it. This is a fish. We carefully noted down the name of the visitor who found it in the notebook because the data at that point is more important than the fossil itself. And then you discreetly get rid of it because nobody likes to see those things go away, unfortunately. Yeah, for sure. Um, There have been a few situations where... um, uh, what I would call an avocational paleontologist, generally uh, an amateur, somebody who it's not their job, but they know their stuff. Um, they've been doing this for a very long time. Uh, Western Interior Paleo Society has a lot of those um, who have applied for and received permits uh, to collect for their local repository museum because they have published. You know, they actually do have the experience just because they are not. You know, paleontologist isn't their title. They were able to work with me and with other people in order to get those credentials. And so there are lots of ways to get involved, but uh, but casually collecting from the roadsides, unfortunately, in Colorado is not one of them. That's not one of them. That's not it's one of just, them. it's a weird quirk. And it's because a lot of people don't understand the difference between archaeology and paleontology. That's that's kind of one of the, the, you know, the drums I bang, you know, all over the place is no Archaeologists don't dig dinosaurs. I work with enough archaeologists now that they get very salty if you ask them about dinosaurs. And I don't deal with with human remains. Again, the second humans are involved, it's the archaeologist problem. Um, But because so few people understand that difference, and the people making the laws didn't necessarily understand that difference, it's all lumped together. I mean, it makes a lot of sense, right? When you think of, uh, from our perspective, from the, the, the science nerd, the academic paleontologist it makes a lot of sense to see uh especially humans and dinosaurs lumped closely together because in places like colorado where you have such a rich history of the the indigenous peoples that live through here and their interpretations of fossils as well as as amazing places like mesa verde and dinosaur ridge and a lot of other a lot of things they are right next to each other um these resources have been been uh these resources have been enjoyed by humans for thousands of years we are not the first people to wonder what these animals were that walked by absolutely it's always really fun when you do see those kind of confluences um when fossil resources become archaeological resources as well Um, partly because we're often not looking in the same places Um, there's something in archaeology mitigation called slope exclusion where basically that cliff is too steep nobody was living there you know, unless there's like an, a really obvious, you know, um, rock art situation. With paleo, of course, that's where we want to look. Right, yeah. That's <laughs> because that's where the, the rocks are exposed. In gravity. Gravity's yeah, going to help absolutely. me find this dinosaur or, or non-dinosaur. I, I want to see the bare rocks. I'm not looking in the knee-deep grasses. And that's quite the opposite for a lot of the archaeological stuff. It's fun going out with the archies because I, it's just different. <laughs> yeah, it's a totally different experience. Yeah. And the few archaeological digs I've been on and the paleo digs I've been on, I go, oh, night and day. 
What do you mean you have to dig perfect three foot by three foot square hole? Yeah. Can't we just dig a hole in the ground and pull the thing out? And they look at me like, I've got two heads and then I've, no, 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 you can't do that, they say. Yeah, I got to go out on a project a few months ago uh, where they found some bones and weren't sure exactly what it was, but I went out with the archaeologists because we had a suspicion they were recent. I've never actually used a trowel before. It was kind of fun because you do. You have to scrape it down in a much different fashion than I would for, for paleo digging. Yeah, yeah. And I, I find paleo digging <laughs> more freeing just because Absolutely. you don't have to panic so much. Um, well, it's I mean, a very different science. If you if you look at some of the, the bigger projects, um, I mean, let's just take Snowmass, which has been a little bit now, but... Uh, I mean, they're using backhoes, and every so often I get students or members of the public who are like, oh, they're going to destroy the fossils. It's like, no, it's okay. Yeah, but right. the second they reach something that they thought might have human influence, it came to a screeching halt, right. which is actually something I run into with crews, incidentally, with construction crews. If I'm going out to monitor on a project, some of them are very excited. They're super excited. Oh, I can remember working on one where, like, every uh, – Every five minutes, one of the crew was bringing me a rock. It's like, is this a leaf? And it's just like, that's a beautiful water stain, but thank you so much for bringing it to my attention. Um, and then I get others where they're like, don't you find anything? It's, well, I, I don't really have any control over that, do I? But they may have heard of probably archaeological digs where the project came to a screeching halt. And some of them are a little afraid that they're going to lose their job if we find anything. It's probably not going to happen. Honestly, with a lot of paleontological um, monitoring, which is what we do when we stand around on the sidelines Super while the, the back high, backhoes dig uh, or the, the bulldozers go by, is we're just watching for signs of fossils. And if I see something, it's often, hey, go take a coffee break. I'll be right back. And then I go check and see what it is. If it's something, I collect it. Maybe they take a 15-minute coffee break instead of five. Um, and then they can move on. You know, the mass, vast majority of, of paleo mitigation doesn't take that long. It just takes kind of trained eyes uh, on site in order to make sure that we catch stuff. That's awesome. Big thanks to Dr. Nicole Peavy with the Colorado Department of Transportation, our state's official mitigation paleontologist. We'll have both Nicole and Matt Mossbrecker back in future episodes to share more fossil histories and paleo mysteries. Take a look at our show notes for details on some of the things that they mentioned. Pop quiz time. Are you ready? The spikes on Stegosaurus's tail are known as... If you said Thagomizers, you got it. There's a fun story about that name involving a comic strip, so definitely check out our show notes for a link. Okay, here's another. What species of Stegosaurus was the first to be excavated from right here at Dinosaur Ridge? It was Stegosaurus armatus. There are at least four other Stegosaurus species from the Morrison Formation. All right, last one. Who named the Stegosaurus back in 1877 during the so-called Bone Wars? That would be Othniel Charles Marsh from Yale. We've got some links in the show notes with more details that you can read about. And thank you for listening to the first ever episode of Land Before Podcast. We'll be kicking off season one in the coming weeks, so please subscribe with the podcatcher of your choice. Email comments and questions to info at dinoridge.org. See you soon! Jeff LaMontagne is our supervising producer. Kristen Kidd is executive producer. Aaron LeCount is our host. Michelle Howells, a contributor. Our theme song is by Hansdale Sue. 
And I'm Katie Bradley, sound editor and sound engineer for the Land Before podcast. Produced at Dinosaur Ridge in Morrison, Colorado, location of the number one dinosaur track site in America. Come and visit us.